Hey there, everybody. It's Rush from Path Less Peld, and today we've got a really interesting video. We're going to talk with our friend Tony from Breadwinner Cycles. Uh, as you know, their G-Road won the most coveted prize in all the bike industry, the Supplest Bike of the Year Award. So uh, I'm going to nerd out with Tony, talk about uh, his de design philosophy, uh, some granular things about angles and materials, and also some of your questions that you guys asked on Instagram. So Tony, thanks for being on our YouTube channel. Thanks for having me, and thank you for the most prestigious award <laughs> in the industry. So has it completely like uh, revolutionized your, your shop getting the most prestigious award in all of the bike industry? Yeah, all we make are G-Roads now. <laughs> yeah, it's over. It's over for everything else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty interesting. Like, uh, you know, that last year I got to ride 25 bikes and I really didn't want to give it to like a, a an expensive custom bike. Yeah, but I, on... I heard. <laughs> <laughs> but just like, you know, the, the qualities I was looking for um, and, you know, the bikes I, I rode, yours just kind of floated up to the top despite like my urge to, to not give you guys the award. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was really um, kind of gr gratifying. I don't know if that's the right word to for that. To, to win that and to hear you say that because, you know, we try to make the bikes the best they can be, obviously. And um, a lot of our customers say, man, this this is the best bike I've ever ridden. They've just spent, you know, six, seven, eight thousand dollars on it. So they're mm -hmm. they're inclined to think that it's the best <laughs> thing ever. But for you, you have no stake in the game you right. know, except for all the money I sent you. There you and, go. <laughs> um, There's just stacks right here. <laughs> yeah, it's just piling up. But, um, you know. I think what it comes down to, and you didn't ask this question, but I think you were going to, is that the materials that we're using are the best materials. And they're probably on the lighter side compared to production brands where they have to make, they have to overbuild a little bit so that, you know, a larger rider doesn't destroy the thing. You know, we build the bike for a particular person mm -hmm. um, and it optimizes the ride quality. We tend to use the same tubes on every bike, but. You know, if someone's a lot bigger, we use the heavier tubes. I know you, you buy a something like a like a Surly. You know, we we all know those are very overbuilt. They're also great bikes, mm -hmm. but right. you know they don't have that subtle kind of lively feel that something like one of our bikes has. I think it's just because we're able to optimize the materials a little bit more. Yeah, that was going to be those, one of my first questions. Is like, so given, uh, let's say, you know, two uh, custom builder and a production bike use the same exact geometry numbers. Like mm -hmm. what is like the added value and where the differences lie? Uh, so it sounds like the materials do make uh, would would make a significant difference. Yeah, yeah, the materials can make a difference. I, I um, and the the process. You know, we are we are able to spend a little more time on each step and maybe do use a process that would be um, that maybe isn't the most efficient way to build a bike, but may add to the ride quality and also definitely adds to the aesthetic quality. And I, I think of the way that we attach our dropouts. Mm -hmm. uh, we use a traditional slotted um, a tab style dropout um, with a slotted stay. So the chain stay and the seat stay, we, we, we miter a slot into them. And then the, the, uh, the dropout slides into it and then is brazed together rather than welded. And the brazing before Ira and I started Breadwinner, we, we, all the bikes we built were brazed entirely. Um, and we love the way a brazed bike work looks, but they're, they're more, they're, uh, they take a lot more time to build. So we do hang on to the brazing for the dropout. And mm -hmm. um, we like the way it looks. It gives a really sculptural quality to that, to that joint. 
Um, and we also braise the top of the, the seat stays where they, they meet the seat tube. It's mostly an aesthetic choice. Mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the case of the seat stay seat tube joint, we have a low, lower heat than you would get with welding, so a little less distortion in that area, so it um, makes it slightly stronger. You know, we can make other choices that um, add to aesthetics or function uh, along the way that, that maybe wouldn't be practical for a production facility or larger right. production facility. <laughs> So in terms of um, like tube selection and making it appropriate for uh, like the weight and the use, um, how does that discussion go? Do you ask the writer like, well, how heavy are you? What's the most you're going to put? And like, what are the things they try to tease out from that initial conversation? Yeah. yeah, well, we have a standard we have a standard fitting form that that you know, their interview questions and and some of them are body measurements. So you know you you know the person's um, weight. Uh, you know how tall they are and, and uh, how they're going to ride the bike, um, what they expect. Um, for most riders, we we stick to a standard tube set for each bike because most riders fall, most cyclists kind of fall in a pretty small range. You know, they tend to be fairly fit. Um, um, and, you know, there there is an average height of people in the world. So um, the bike's the bike, the tubes that we've chosen for each model, the, the standard tube sets, um, work for most people. But if someone's a lot, a lot bigger, a lot heavier in particular, um, you know, we'll we'll bump up usually the diameter of the tube uh, rather than the wall thickness. You get a lot more. You get tubes get exp exponentially stiffer when you increase their diameter. Mm. So um, by bumping up to say the next size up, let's say on the uh, on the B road or the G road, we use a uh, 31, uh, 31.8 millimeter down tube. We might bump that up to our a 35 millimeter down tube, uh, just to add, add a little bit of stiffness. If somebody's, you know, 250 pounds or something, you know, right. it just, it just makes the bike, um, uh, stiffer for that rider, but far stiffer than you would want it for most other riders. So yeah, there, there is that possibility. Um, for us, we, we have an idea of what we generally use for each bike. We so start there. you guys have um, you know distinct uh, model G Road, uh, B Road, Lolo. How much play within those set designs does does the customer have? Quite a lot, yeah. and and it's actually been more and more. Um, and and part of that is because we want to build bikes that are exactly what our what our riders expect or want. Um, but also because our production process has gotten more refined, we're able to have a little more flexibility. When we started out, we we're like, we actually, and this is still out there. We start, we started out talking about the bikes as semi-custom, when in reality, as we immediately after we got into it, they're really custom bikes. Mm -hmm. And the great things thing about the way we're doing we're doing our bikes now versus how we used to do our bikes is that. We have a design for each bike. That's why we have models. Our Lolo is a really well thought out road bike. Um, the the B road, the G road, you know, they've they've really they we've gone through the ringer with them. We've done some testing. We've we've tweaked tire clearance here and there, and um, you know, optimized the seat stay bend and how we do all those parts of the process, so that with we're not reinventing every single bike and starting with a totally blank slate of paper. We do know we have a general idea of what tubes we want. This also helps speed up the process so that we don't, it, it <laughs> contributes to us not having that long wait list. So, but we do, and, and I was just pointed out recently by a customer that uh, our website doesn't do a good job of talking about this because it kind of, it, it 
insinuates that the head tube angle and the C tube angle are locked in, or mm-hmm. the bottom bracket drop is locked in. All right. Um, they're not. <laughs> it, you know, the, the head tube angle um, changes all the time. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, the head tube angle changes all the time to um, accommodate um, toe clearance in particular. Uh, it also helps you balance out weight distribution. So, yeah, pretty much everything is is uh, can be changed. Um, where we 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 often push back on changes that customers request because mm-hmm. we feel that we're the experts, right. and usually <laughs> we have a good reason for why our chain stays are a certain length. For instance, some people come in and say, "Oh, you know, I love that bike, but I want the chain stays to be a lot longer." It's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, if you do that. You're going to be limited in how what size chain rings you can use, and your tire clearance, and you know, blah blah blah. It's it's, it's a cascade, and um, not everyone that requests a sh- shorter chainstay or a different chainstay length understands all all the ramifications of of making that change. Um, so, um, yeah, we usually can just discuss that that <laughs> say, hey, you know, I understand why you would want to do that, but we. We do it this way for, you know, blah, blah, blah reason. Right. So how do you, um, so I met, like, how do most customers come at you? Do they can describe, like, a, a feel that they're trying to get with the bike? Or do many of them come with, like, set angles? And, like, how do you interpret? So some yeah. people are, some people have, you know, even gotten on BikeCAD. The BikeCAD's the bike design program that we use, that most bike builders use um, these days. And you can get online and use a free version of it. It's really fun. Some people have gone there. You know, and everybody's different. Some people are really into playing around with that stuff. And um, other people are like, you know, I, I love that G-Road. I, I want one. You know, mm-hmm. so it, it's right. the, the full <laughs> spectrum. Or uh, most most people don't dive in that deeply. Right. Um, uh, but when they do, you know, we, we have a discussion. And, and going back to your, your, your first question on what is customizable and what questions do we ask? We do have our standard fitting form. Um, so it's very empirical, it's empirical stuff. And we take that and also have a whole conversation. Like it's basically like an interview where, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, what kind of riding you do. If you're a climber or a descender, or you're a little bit of both, or you like, you know, you like riding your road bike on single track or, mm-hmm. or, you know, maybe you're a, a pure sunny day, flat road rider, you know, those all go into, um, not only how the bike is designed, but how we set it up and right. what components we end up putting on it as well. Right. Um, in terms of what was, I'm, I'm kind of curious about what the, um, like the head angle offset and trail were on the G road that I tested. Cause I feel like it had like a pretty good balance in the front in terms of, um, something that, that was stable when on, on rough stuff, but mm-hmm. you know, it didn't feel like you're steering a yacht, you know? Don't remember the the trail off the top of my head. Actually, I could look it up pretty easily. But um, um, the stock head tube angle on a G Road is seventy two and a half degrees, and I I know that bike had a standard head tube angle, Um, and I believe it has a fifty millimeter fifty millimeter fork rake. Here's another question. Uh, In terms of like front end handling, is it seems like there's a lot of things that that kind of affect that. Is there like a particular variable or a number uh, someone could lock into and have that predict how the front end's gonna 
Uh, right. Is it is it is trail like the ultimate kind of I don't know descriptor? Yeah, trail. I think trail is the best descriptor for. Um, it's the best number that will tell you how a bike's going to handle. You know, of course, it's a you know it's a product of a bunch of other things. You can you could you know, slack your bike way out and put a huge amount of rake on the fork and get the same trail number as a steep bike with very little rake. Right. So, you know, and they're obviously going to handle a lot differently. Right. Um, but given, given the range that we work within for a head tube angle, for instance, where you've got, um, you know, on a, on a, between a cross bike, the slackest cross bike and the steepest road bike, we're talking like a three degree difference. So, we're in a pretty, we're right. in a pretty <laughs> tight range there, um, but yeah, the, the 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 distance the contact is, the the distance the contact patch is behind the steering axis is your trail, and that has, that that is I think the best descriptor of how the bike's going to feel through right. the handlebars. So what's uh, uh-huh. let's let's kind of assign like a, a number range to like a feeling like what would be like a a stable what's a trail number for a bike that would be really lively and one that that's kind of super stable. So, um, the G road is 58. Just looked it up. That's our standard trail figure. you know, obviously that's going to change if we tweak the head tube angle, but, um, um, that's fairly typical of, uh, most, um, like cross or gravel bikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, road bikes are going to be, Pretty pretty close to that. Actually, let me pull up. Curious what a yeah. A, a Lolo is about fifty one. Okay. Um, mountain bikes will go into the eighty, you know, eighty to a hundred um, for you know more slack. <clears throat> so uh, generally, the, the higher the trail number, the more stable it is. It's going to be at at speed. Right, and the more effort it will take to turn the handlebars. Okay. So you know, a mountain bike with that much trail, your handlebars are you know, 24 inches wide. (laughs) So, um, or more, um, you've got more leverage, um, on a bike, the, the, I, Jan Hein at bicycle quarterly sparked a lot of this discussion about trail, Mm -hmm. um, 15 years ago. Um, and, um, he started talking about it in the context of having a handlebar bag for Ronda Noring and, and, um, and it's a, that's a really good example on, on a bike that does have a front load, either, whether it's panniers or cargo cages or, um, you know, handlebar bag, um, or in the case of our, our city bike, the Arbor Lodge, that big portour rack, the big flat rack. Mm-hmm. If you put weight on the front of a bike, it makes it harder to steer. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you make the trail smaller, you, 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 it makes it, it makes it steer more easily so you so you can change you can change the steering geometry so that it handles better with a load on it but if you take this the load off of that same bike it's not going to handle well so you, right. you've got to walk that fine line yeah so. i think like a, the way i like to think about or the, the way that it finally made sense to me was uh, actually the brompton you know mm. it's like it's it's nine day when you put like the big front loading touring back it it, it totally uh, mellows out the the steering but without it it's like a it's like a squirrel or a dog chasing right, a squirrel. Right, right. And it's probably more pronounced on that with the small wheels. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, this is like a perfect like magnification of, of what, what Jan's been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, is yeah, it... and, you know, and it's interesting. He's, he's, he thinks for a round and oaring bike with like a bag that might have 
you know, eight pounds in it that you should have trail in the 30 to 35 millimeter range. I can't stand riding a bike like that. Yeah. So, you know, there's personal preference that plays into it too. I, I used to build a lot of round ignoring bikes and I tried that super low trail. Um, I didn't like it. I like for that kind of a bike, I like closer to 40, 43, 45, somewhere in there. Um, I just like the way the bike feels. I get, I have just like the steering feel of it better. So yeah. yeah so there's is, personal preference that plays yeah. into it as well. <laughs> is it possible to have a bike with two different forks and have one for like, okay, daily non front loaded riding and one that's a little bit more adjusted for front load? Or does that, does, is that just like the cascading effect where for it to do it well, things, other things would have to change? No, it could be, it could be done. You would have to, they, they'd have to be different lengths to keep the head tube at the same angle, unless you were trying to change the head tube angle. Um, I, in the past I've built, um, I built some mountain bikes. The, the best example I can think of where, um, it was built to, for a suspension fork, but then we would also set it up with a rigid fork that would, where it would change the head tube angle. Um, but then we'd accommodate that with the rake change as well, and you could get it optimized. So um, that's not something we off we I don't think we've ever done that with a breadwinner. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> the question sometimes is, hey, if I put this is like after someone's already gotten a bike, hey, if I put this other fork on it, what's going to happen? <laughs> and, and we have the ability to tell them. Um, but yeah, that would be possible. It would take, you know, it would just take some plugging and plugging the numbers in. And right. Not all plans. Yeah, it's actually one of the the arguments I've heard for a custom bike is that most production bikes, you know, when they make the fork, they don't adjust the offset for each side size. So there's kind of a, a play and a compromise between, you know, okay, smaller sizes and larger sizes they get the same fork offset. So then they to compensate, they they adjust the head angle and everything. Right. You know, and. We, we sell a lot of bikes with carbon forks that, you know, you, you may, you maybe you have a couple of rake options. Um, we can, we can do that. Um, but most you're, you're kind of stuck with changing right. the, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, they, they, they still ride well. Yeah. So I guess one of the, I feel like the biggest challenges of, uh, of creating a, a custom bike is setting expectations. <laughs> So how do you do that? Like, how do you, you know, just yeah, at the end of the day, it's it's still a bike. You want to make you the best bike, but, you know, it's not going to, you know, turn you into Lance or whatever. That yeah, <laughs> yeah, people are fairly realistic, you know. Um, um, our, our, our riders come to us based on our reputation and, you know, what they've heard about the bikes from folks like yourself or other, other you know, friends that they might have um, that have, have the bikes. Um, they don't get to test ride them, which I've always been super grateful of that, the leap of faith that people take to, to get to do that. Mm -hmm. um, um, uh, but, you know, the, the, I, the idea is kind of goes back to having different bike models is, you know, hey, that, that bike is optimized for this purpose or it's optimized for that purpose plus or minus what you want to do with it. Um, you know, and however, whatever tweaks we've made so that it's a better bike packing bike than a road bike or, or whatever it is, you know, the idea is to optimize the design for whatever, however it's going to be used. And, and, uh, that's what we're good at. So, um, right. I, I, the promise is that it will meet the expectations. Um, I can't really think of a, 
Uh, actually, yeah, I, I, we actually had someone yesterday ask us if we built uh, a single speed gravel bike that they could also shred the track on. It's and a lot to ask. Was, <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what shredding the track is. Right. And that, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, some sometimes people want their bikes to do too much. I think that that it's funny that that happened yesterday. But <laughs> we we a lot of times we'll get questions about you know can my use my you know would my mountain bike be a good cyclocross bike? Right. And you know it would. You, I'm sure you could race cyclocross on it and have fun. But you know it's not ideal. You know you have that conversation or the 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 gravel bike versus the the touring bike or mm-hmm. like the road touring bike or. Or, you know, can I use my road bike for commuting? Like, obviously, yes, you can. (laughs) But, you know, we don't want to try to make it do too much or it's going to compromise too much in in all directions. So, right, right. I have one more like kind of bike nerdy question and then we'll move to uh, the Instagram questions. Um, Bottom bottom bracket drop. Like, how does that ultimately affect the ride? And where have you settled for like a road bike versus like a gravel bike? Ira and I... I think I I prefer a lower bottom bracket drop than maybe Ira does, so we kind of meet in the middle a little bit there. I really love the feeling. I'm more of a, I'm more of a descender, and Ira's more of a climber. <laughs> so we balance each other out there. Um, I really love the feel of a lower bottom bracket when I'm descending. It just lowers your center of gravity a little bit. I feel like I'm down in the bike a little bit more, and I love the way that feels. Um, Ira pointed out though that a lower bottom bracket. Um, you have to swing the bike around the axle axis more um, when you're climbing and you're kind of rocking the bike. Like it, it, it turns into more pendulum. I guess you're not actually pivoting the bike on the axle axis. You're pivoting on the contact patch. But um, his, his thinking is that, and his, his experience, he's played with this more than I have. I've never <laughs> thought about bottom bracket drop in relation to how a bike climbs, but mm-hmm. that, He's like, you know, a, a, a bike with a little higher bottom bracket climbs better. And Interesting. Like, oh. Because and it, it, it oscillates less, like there's like less, like a That's the like idea. Like, that's yeah. the idea. And I, I, I'm now, as I'm saying it, I'm like, is that, is that actually right? But that's his, that's his belief. And so he, he likes it a little bit higher, but not a lot. So I think, I think our road bikes, are like the low lows around 70. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that the B road, is at 63 mm-hmm. um, and uh, the G road is also um, the G roads the same. So it's also 63 and then, you know, mountain bikes are in the, I think around 40 or something. Yeah. Um, cross bike, the cross bike is five millimeters higher than the, than the B, the whole shots five millimeters higher than the B road just to give you a little more pedal clearance. But yeah, um, yeah, I think on 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 whole on balance, our bottom brackets tend to be on the low side. Yeah. And production production bikes, I think, tend to be a little bit higher just to add in a little margin of error for people <laughs> doing pedal strike and whatnot. Right. Um, I know my personal road bike that I've had now for 10, 12 years, um, that that has a 80 millimeter bottom bracket drop, and I that bike sends so well on a, on a twisty paved road. It's super fun to, to send on. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess that's cool. 
All right, well, let's it. move on to some uh, Instagram questions. Uh, I think Graham Bikes asks, uh, what would you tell your younger self? <laughs> that's a good question because I remember when I started building bikes, and I guess that's what I'm going to call my younger self. Uh, I guess if we go back before that, I wish that I had started earlier. Having taught at UBI for a while and met a lot of aspiring flame, frame builders, you know, and, and having gone through it myself and heard all those warnings as well. I remember the first the first NABs I went to, you know, I met all these famous frame builders. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, you know, I, was, I, I couldn't believe I was actually talking to these people. And a lot of them said, don't do it. Don't, don't do it. <laughs> do it. <laughs> Uh, I won't. I won't name any names, but even one of my suppliers <laughs> said, "Don't do it. Don't do it." You know, so and so got divorced because of. It. I was like, "No, that's not true." But anyway, um, yeah. that's how I feel like when yeah, people so, ask me about starting a YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, owning your own business is hard, and you need to be prepared for that. And and to go to your question. That's the best thing you can do is have a good business education. Right. I, I have a degree, I have a liberal arts degree in, in economics, and that is no preparation for owning a business. Um, I also, I, for a long time, I regretted that I got that degree and wished that I'd done, gone more into engineering or something like that, um, which I think would have been a great career track for myself. Um, and, but current, in my current role, I wish that I had a business degree. All right. So, and, uh, you know, we can always look back and, <laughs> and hindsight is, is great. But, um, yeah, running, running business is hard. It's the thing that we struggle with the most. Uh, I, got, I got into this to build bikes. Most bike builders get into this because they like to build bikes. And I remember saying things like, yeah, I don't need to make very much money. And, um, you know, when you're, when you're 30 or you know, 25, that is true, but inevitably it changes. You have to make money and you know, you have to be in business to make money or it's not going to work. You're right. going to have to do something else. So yeah. that's, you know, it's no secret that breadwinner is called breadwinner partially for that reason. Right. Um, <laughs> it was an inside joke before it was actually our brand name. And, um, but the truth of the matter is that, you know, we like the way it sounds as a brand name, but we also, you know, this is version 2.0 and we, we, we need to make money. So, um, we're trying to figure out a way to do the thing that we love, which is making bikes and still make a living and, uh, have financial security and employ other people and pay them a fair wage and, and all that. So yeah, business fundamentals. Yeah, I'm kind of, we're, we're kind of in the same boat. You know, we started, you know, uh, our stuff just because we love bikes and sharing content. And it got to the point where it's like, well, you have to make a living out of this, too, so people can continue, continue to enjoy the content, you know, so uh, looking at the business aspect. Um, Ian Tillinside asks, um, lots of people doing stainless steel. Um, do you guys have any uh, opinions uh, downsides to XCR, which I'm assuming is a type of tubing or 953 mm. for an entire bike. I've never built a stainless bike. Ira's done a couple. Um, uh, the drawbacks to stainless are that there aren't as many tubes to choose from. Mm -hmm. uh, so optimizing the butt lengths and the tube diameters for each design um, is is more difficult. Um, 
Uh, cost is definitely uh, something to, I don't, see the benefits outweighing the disadvantages so much. Um, you know, corrosion resistance is nice, um, but we don't have a particular problem with our bikes rotting underneath their riders. They last a real long time. Um, we use really high quality paint, so they're protected on the outside. And on the inside of the frame, we treat them with a, a frame saver, rust inhibitor. Um, that, you know, it's something you need to reapply. It's a, it's, it's, it, it does add a little bit of maintenance once a year or so. You should spray some rust inhibitor inside your steel frame. Um, something you can do when you're doing your, your yearly overhaul is something <laughs> else you should also do. You know, and people don't do either of those things, and the bikes still don't fall apart. So right. um, we interestingly, we've had a couple of bikes come back this year with some, some rust um, under the paint. And you know, we just warranty repainted them. Um, I, I think that was a something happened in the paint process. Uh, you know, and now that we've built 500 frames, we are seeing more warranty stuff. <laughs> uh, there's just more of them out there. Um, and and two just happened to come back in the last few months. Um, our painter stood right stood behind his work, and he painted them, repainted them free of charge. Um, and the um, so, you know, not a problem. And it was surfacey stuff anyway. Eto Thimer, I think he's actually, he has, he owns two breadwinners. <laughs> oh, cool. Yes. Uh, what is your least favorite part of building a frame? <laughs> uh, the, the facing, chasing, reaming step at the end, like what we call the prep. Yeah. Kind of like the me mechanical task. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, you have to get, you have cutting oil and you're like, turning these tools and we do it all manually. We could, we, we need to automate some of that stuff or, or use power tools for some of it, but we still do it manually. Um, and yeah, that is definitely my least favorite part of the whole thing. Yeah. He also asks, uh, is there a current trend in cycling that you would like to see go away or, or to stay? <laughs> <laughs> I hope that the, I hope that the, you know, the, the gravel, and adventure stuff keeps going. I, I love it. I love that style of bike. You know, when, before, before that became really popular and when Ira and I were riding for the, the Rafa continental crew, um, we were doing that kind of stuff on our 25 millimeter tires. <laughs> and, um, I remember back then thinking this is the dumbest bike to be doing this on, but it was so <laughs> fun. And then, you know, now that we've got bikes that are actually made for that, um, I, I love it. I, you know, you hear people say stuff like I just did, like, right. oh, we've been doing that for years. It's yeah. like, yeah, but <laughs> this is a better bike for that. And, yeah. um, it's been fun. Uh, I think for us, we get to build more unique bikes that are really, um, you know, within the niche of gravel slash adventure, all road riding, people are doing all different kinds of things. So it's a great, it's a great space for the custom bike because we can add this braze on or that braze on or tweak the geometry here or add frame packs or, you mm -hmm. know, do all those fun things that, um, that you'll never get out of a production bike. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a good little world for us. I would love it if um, people rode more hardtail mountain bikes. That that's where I'd like to see some growth. I, that I just, I love riding my good water and I've always ridden pretty much always ridden hardtail mountain bikes that's what I started out building. I've been mountain biking since the eighties. And that's just like, that's my, that's where my heart really is. So, um, we build, I, I should, I, I, now that the year has ended, I should look and see how many we, we did last year. 
Um, we probably did 15 or so good waters, uh, which is, you know, actually that's, that's generous. We did less than that. <laughs> we maybe did 12. Um, I would love to do a lot more of those. So this is a, a question from Sklar. He said, what, what's your, he said, what are your favorite trail snacks? <laughs> <laughs> Sour Patch Kids, of course. And I got turned on to them because my son likes them and we were out mountain biking. So I go to Montana and at, there were 12 of us there, I think, from all over the place. And everybody was into them. It was really funny. So, yeah, Sour Patch Kids. It's like the, the La Croix of mountain biking. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that happened. But um, I also like real food. So I carry um, sandwiches. I like making pancakes before rides. And mm -hmm. I'll usually you know, put peanut butter on them and, and you know, like pancakes with peanut butter. Or um, um, the only bars I really eat are are like kind bars, you know, like that are made out of actual things that look like food. So, yeah. Uh, well, one last question. Uh, I'm curious, like what, what's the most popular color that goes out your door? Is it something boring like black? <laughs> <laughs> we have noticed over the years that, um, we'll, we'll usually have six to 12 frames kind of hanging up that are post paint waiting for shipping or assembly or whatever. And for whatever reason, you see them come in waves. Like right now, we've got a bunch of um, gray frames. And, you know, maybe it's midwinter and people decided they wanted gray. I, you know, you'd think maybe it'd be the opposite. But, you know, then, uh, you know, the next wave will be blue and then you'll see red. And I don't know why that happens. Our most popular color might actually be gray. Uh, <laughs> But we do a lot of blues. We do several blues. Our, our bread, there's this bread, the light breadwinner blue that's one of our stock colors. So we have nine stock colors. Yeah, I, I know I, talking to um, our friends at Chris King, they, we've discussed this in the past too. You know, they make all those anodized colors right. and they sell black and silver mostly. Right. <laughs> well, cool. Well, thanks for uh, spending uh, the morning on the channel. Uh, hopefully, and if we get enough questions or if you're up to doing this again, uh, yeah, you're we'll welcome. Response. I, uh, I, I enjoy it. It's fun. Yeah. Uh, it's, thanks for having me. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you, Tony. And uh, if you uh, let me know what you guys think of the video, if you guys have any questions for Tony, maybe if we get enough, we'll sit down again or, or get Ira in the mix as well. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I talked with Ira earlier and he was like, what about me? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, maybe you should have one with Ira. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. That's a good idea. Uh, all right. Well, thank you.